I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in, in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who, was, who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit uh, Cepheus and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the, Lord, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in the person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. This is the word of our Lord. Thank you, God. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this time to come to your word, this time of worship to praise you for how great you are, to recite, Lord, declarations of faith and to to consider now what truly is the gospel of grace and how is it different from simply being religious. Lord, we pray that as we meditate on your word and as we spend time tonight and over the next several weeks in the book of Galatians, which is your word, that you would challenge the way that we think, um, the way that we live, but most of all, you would, Lord, reorient and refresh uh, what we believe about you, and what we claim the gospel to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So tonight we kick off our new series entitled Losing Our Religion. And as Pastor Tommy said earlier, we're going to be going through this series all the way up until Easter. It's going through the book of Galatians written by the Apostle Paul. And the intention of this series, which goes with the name Losing Our Religion, is to take religion and put it in the corner, put it in the spot, lie. Some of you are like, don't ever do that again. 
That was a play on the R.E.M. song, if you don't know, Losing My Religion. I have always wanted to do that, and I accomplished it. But before we, we jump into the text tonight and begin to travel through uh, the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, I want to kind of sort out a few things for you in the very beginning. First off, just when you read the title and you see the title, Losing Our Religion, you may think, okay, are we claiming as a church that Christianity is not a religion? No, we're not claiming that Christianity is not a religion because a religion is a particular set of beliefs and practices regarding worship. It's how you engage with faith and worship in a system. And certainly, Christianity is a system of faith and worship. It's uh, regarded and, and detailed as a religion. But though Christianity is a religion, it's not religious. And there's a difference between those two things, which we'll unpack through this series. You see, when we say losing our religion, it really means losing the religious nature of living out your faith, the things that we get distorted, the things that we, we shift, those slight twists on the gospel that affect the way that we view God, the way that we view others, the way that we live. You see, we can fall captive to this religious notion that in order to find God, in order to grow closer to God, in order to improve your life, you just need to apply a certain set of positions and practices to your life, and then as you begin to get more religious in your faith, things will go better for you, and you'll get closer to God, and he's going to bless you because you're showing your love for him, and because you show your love for him, he's going to then show his love for you. That's not the gospel. That's not the Christian faith, but we can easily fall captive to that, and many of us in this room have been raised in churches that have preached a message similar to that, and environments that have told you that, that God loves you, but listen, your love is a little bit dependent upon the way that you respond to that love and the way that you love him back and the positions and practices that you apply to your life. It can almost feel sometimes, and maybe you have felt this before or you're working through this now, that to be a Christian means that you have to act a certain way, you have to look a certain way, and maybe you have to vote a certain way. That's what we hear and maybe what we feel, but that's not the message of Christianity See, so the Apostle Paul writes this letter, as I said, to the church in Galatia. And this church, which is probably many churches in the region, is really full of a very specific type of person. And that person is a recovering religious addict. That is who is in this church. They are recovering Pharisees. Many of the people in this church are Pharisees, which were uh, Jews that had grown up very devoted to their faith, very orthodox, had very impressive moral behavior. And when you looked at them, you said, man, God is on their minds. God is in their action. But what is evident in the Pharisee is that God was not in their heart. That's why Jesus spends so much time debating and challenging and calling out Pharisees in his public ministry because God was not on the seat of their heart, but they wanted to portray that by their religious actions and and motives. And so this church in Galatia is full of Gentiles, non-Jews, and Pharisees, very devoted men and women of faith, would have been men at this time, but the women would have followed as well to follow after Judaism. And they've all converted to come to believe in faith in Jesus Christ, but there's been this kind of pull to get more religious, to change the gospel of grace to a gospel of action and performance and law and custom and rituals and traditions. And so what was kind of stirring in this church was this belief that there's this religious karma out there, 
that if you do enough for God, he is almost obligated to return the favor. If you pay it forward to God, he's going to pay it forward to you later. If you begin to follow the right customs and you show a maturity of faith and you display in the way that you live and the way that you worship, the way that you treat people, that you are very Christian and very religious, then God is going to, on the back end, bless you, this religious karma. And so Paul is writing a church that is recovering from this and dealing with this and and hearing this and twisting all of this with the gospel. And so he starts the letter in a very interesting way. He starts out by clearly laying out the gospel in the very first few verses. In verse 1, he speaks about the resurrection of Christ. And we're picking up in verse 3 where he says this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, when you read God's word, it's important to slow down to recognize not only what's said, but what isn't said. You see, we're going to see in a moment that, that Paul is writing this letter with a sense of urgency. I mean, he's going to say that he's astonished at the way that they've distorted and left the gospel and manipulated it. But he starts, and it maybe was even difficult for him to pen this, he starts by saying what? Grace and peace to you. Not from him, he's probably upset. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say judgment and disappointment to you from God because you can't get it right and you've so quickly already distorted the gospel. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to let them know at the very beginning, before he jumps into attacking the issues that are facing the church and their distortion of the gospel, that the gospel tells you that regardless of your actions and behavior and your distortion, if you believe what he says here, that Jesus gave himself up for your sins and delivered you, grace and peace is yours from God not disappointment and judgment. Spoiler alert, that's the gospel. Jesus gave himself up for you, and you are delivered. Jesus gave, you're delivered. That's the whole gospel that he is trying to put in the heart of this church. But we can manipulate that, and that's what they did too. They, so they would have claimed in the church, and maybe you're wrestling through this as well, that Jesus gave his life for me, but now I have to begin to perform for him to ensure that I'm delivered. Or Jesus gave his life for me and my sins, but I better make sure that I change my life and it's evident to all my peers so that I can feel assured that my deliverance is true. You see, we add that second little bullet point there. It's not Jesus gave, I'm delivered. It's Jesus gave, now I have to do something to ensure that I'm actually forgiven and delivered. This church was having a really hard time living in grace, though they would have claimed to believe in the grace of Jesus Christ. And so Paul jumps in, and as I said, he's, he's not playing any games. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, I'm astonished. Grace and peace to you from God, but me, I'm astonished that you so quickly deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Or some translations say another gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
If you've read many of the letters of Paul, you'll notice that there's something different about this letter. He doesn't start in the same way. Here's how Paul typically starts a letter. He'll say something like, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I've received this report about you, and I'm so impressed with the way that you are, are caring for people and your generosity and your good works. People are hearing about it. He begins to encourage the church and affirm the church. And then later in the letter, he'll begin to address the issues that he's heard. Here, there's none of that. He gives the gospel, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus gave himself up for you and you were delivered. And then he says, I'm astonished. Like, we're not going to do this like I'm just going to sugarcoat and make you feel encouraged. I'm astonished that you have so quickly deserted the gospel. And he doesn't say, he doesn't make it about him. He says that you so quickly deserted him who has called you, which is God himself. You see, there was these people in the church, and the scholars have called them Judaizers. As I said, they're recovering Pharisees. And these Judaizers would have, have kind of shared this message of adding Jewish customs and traditions and religious motivations to the Christian faith. And so it would have sounded a little something like this. I know that we all believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, but listen, let me tell you something. If you want to have maturity of faith, you need to begin to look and act and behave more Jewish. You need to, be, you need to perform your faith like a Jew. You need to act like a Jew. You need to look like a Jew to the point where they were telling people, you need to get circumcised. Imagine that going over. Yes, I know you're 45 years old, but you need to get circumcised. That's what was being shared. You need to look, act, and perform your faith like a Jew. Paul uses this very strong language, and he says, you are focusing on the wrong person. You're focusing on yourself, on your actions and your performance and your behavior and how you look. The gospel is very clear. I already shared it with you. It's that Jesus gave, and you were delivered. And you have abandoned that already so quickly. I'm astonished that you have abandoned God to add yourself into the equation. He doubles down, and here's what he says in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. We have something in common with the Galatian church. They're a two-time church as well. If you notice, Paul has to repeat himself. He's like, I know you didn't get it the first time, so I'm going to repeat it over again. He's saying to the church, you need to listen. You need to really focus on this letter because this isn't just like a minor issue. You can tell that I'm not sugarcoating. I'm astonished. And you need to see what I am saying and the truth of the gospel because you've distorted it and you've abandoned it. You see, there's something important to understand that what's happening in the life of this church. It's not as if inside of these churches there are, you know, Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, and there's this kind of um, encouragement to for everyone to look more Jewish and act more Jewish. And then there's these false prophets in there that are saying things like this. Hey, Jesus is great, wonderful. But have you tried Dionysus? Dionysus is great too. Try it out. Or people, as if people are saying in the church, Jesus is great, but come on, really? Died for your sins? Rose from the dead? 
Come on, give me a break. I mean, he's a good teacher, so take his teachings and apply his teachings to your life, and that will benefit your life. You see, these type of messages of like, try out Dionysus, try out these other religions and these other faith positions, and Jesus, come on, Jesus isn't the Messiah who died in robes. He's a good teacher, just apply those things. They were hearing those messages too. These are anti-gospel messages. It is the opposite of the gospel message, the good news message of Jesus Christ. They were hearing these things as well, but these things are fundamentally different faith positions and practices. And so if someone were to believe an anti-gospel message, it would cause in them a very conscious choice to alter their faith, to change the way that they worship and what they believe about God and, and probably who they spend their time with. They would have most likely begin to not associate with the church and the community. They would have gone to worship at Dionysus Temple or just kind of spend time with a different crowd of people. You see, an anti-gospel message, if you begin to believe it, to try out a different faith or to not believe that Jesus died and rose and he's just a good teacher to apply to your life, when you begin to believe that, it causes in you a need and a, a necessary action to remove the status that you may carry as Christian. You have to go on social media and you have to change. You're no longer Christian, you remove it. But that's not what's happening in the church. It's not an anti-gospel message that Paul is so urgent to address. It's another gospel. It's a gospel message that sounds really close to the true message, but just like a little twist. It's just a little different. And this is so dangerous, which is why Paul attacks it so quickly. You see, the people that would have been sharing this gospel message that is another gospel, not anti, but another gospel, would have been using the same terminology as Paul and any other pastor, any other apostle. They would have been preaching Jesus Christ. They would have been preaching that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. They would have been saying things like, let me tell you about how I got saved, how I used to consider myself a Pharisee, but now I consider myself a Christian. They would have been encouraging and urging people to put their trust and their faith in Christ. They would have been using the word gospel all the time. But just because someone says the word gospel doesn't mean it is the gospel. And this is what Paul wants to change and to attack because they just are adding a little. You could hear kind of the conversations in the church like this. We all here believe that Jesus died and he rose, and that we're delivered because of his sacrifice, but we're Jewish, and we've been worshiping God for a long time, and if you forget, Jesus was also a Jew, and if you want to have a mature faith, a complete faith, a full faith, if you want to live a really satisfying life, a fulfilling life, then you need to begin to add these customs to your life. You have to act a little bit more Jewish and look a little bit more Jewish. Here is what the gospel should look like now that you believe that Jesus died and rose. So you have to feel that and know that because it's not like people are walking around the church like, hi, I'm a false prophet. Here's my business card. I'm going to share with you an anti-gospel message and I'm going to try to convince you to believe it. No, it just all sounds really nice. Just a little shift. It's a little different. The people that were saying these things would have been charismatic 
and believable. In fact, many of them probably believed what they were saying. But it's not the gospel that they're sharing. It is another gospel to the point where Paul says, listen, if an angel comes with like wings and light and the whole deal and shares with you a different message than the gospel of grace that Jesus gave his life for you and you were delivered, let him be accursed. If I come back and I change my tune and I say something different because you know my history, I used to be a Pharisee. If I start to add some things and change some things, let me be accursed and anybody who listens. That is the degree at which he is encouraging the church to say, if anyone adds to Jesus gave, you were delivered, run. Let them be accursed. You see, the universal church that we live in today is a church of many gospels. Just a, a slight twist, just a little twist on the gospel. And some are more apparent than others. One of the ones that is, is apparent but is increasingly becoming more sneaky and uh, hidden is the gospel of material prosperity. It used to be called the health and wealth gospel. Some people may call it that still today, right? Here's what it sounds like. Jesus gave his life for you. He died for you. He was resurrected. And he has all these blessings and these promises for your life now. He wants to make you rich. He wants to give you prosperity. He wants to make you healthy. All you need to do to access those things is follow these seven steps. Begin to implement these things in your life. Engage in your faith in this way. And it's kind of this magic formula a bit because this religious karma where if you do these things for God, God's obligated to do these things for you. You see, back in the day, it maybe felt more like Hey, if you, God wants to, to make you uh, rich, just send us your money because that makes a lot of sense. And then we're going to give you some oil. You're going to pour it on your checkbook and it's, all of a sudden you're going to have more money in your bank account. Like we see that now and we're like, wait a second, that, okay. But it sounds a little different now. You see, the focus of the deliverance when it's another gospel is on you. Jesus died for you. And he rose from the dead for you. But he wants to deliver your life now. He wants to give you prosperity now and health now. You just need to begin to do these things. It's focused on you, which is why another gospel that we see in our churches is a gospel of the self. Which is like this. Jesus died for you and he gave his life for you. And God's focus now is on your self-improvement. It is on you bettering your life. And you achieving all of those breakthroughs that you want. This is your deliverance. Just begin to do these things and engage in these things. And one that has been in the church for so long and will never leave the church is this one. The gospel of morality. Jesus gave his life for you. But you better make sure that you begin to increase your morality and show forth good works. Because if you don't begin bearing good fruit... You might want to question whether or not Jesus really died for you, or whether you really believe it. You need to ensure that you are going to be delivered by how you perform for God. See, the most dangerous part of these gospels that are another gospel is that all the things that they promise are good things. They're beneficial. Prosperity is good. Health is good. Self-improvement is good. Being a good person is good. 
but it's not the gospel. They may be good things, but they're not good news. You see, as we read in Scripture, God is a father who says that he wants to lavish and give good gifts to his children. He wants to, to bring blessings and, and a life of flourishing. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus gave his life for you and you're delivered. There's no performance, there's no action, there's no certain way to look or vote or live. It's to believe the truth of that. You see, I was asking myself this question this week as I was walking through this. I said, okay, what would it look like for a church to, to exist that is promoting another gospel? Just that slight twist, just a little deviation, a little distortion. You see, what would have to be true is that the centrality of the gospel in the church, the, the true message that Jesus gave his life and you were delivered, would not be at the middle of the church. It wouldn't be on the throne of the church. They have to replace it with something else. There's something else that would be focused on. So the question is, what then would this church be known for? What would a church be known for that has subbed out the message of the gospel for this religious, another gospel belief? What would the sermon sound like and the content created? And what would be promoted? And I began to think about it, and I thought to myself, you know, Probably what the church would be known for is a deep devotion to take America back and to promote partisan political agenda. The church would be known for its political leanings, its political positions, not the gospel, but its politics. Or maybe the church would be known for its social justice initiatives and it's focused on equality, but there's never any mention of Jesus. That's for another time and another place. Or maybe what the church would be known for is this elevation of the self. It's all about you. It's all about your breakthrough. It's all about God, what God wants to do for you and deliver you in your life. The deliverance is about now. It's not about the good news that God has delivered you from your sin. Sure, but he wants to do all of these things for you now as well. Or maybe the church would be the, kind of this low-cost Christianity that offers you all these great blessings but isn't going to ask anything of you. Just a little bit. Or maybe the church would be known as, as a place that is content just kind of being small and learning a lot and growing a lot together but isn't really charged to go into the city and to share the gospel, just to create something safe and comfortable. Or maybe what the church would be known for is a church that gives you really great practical action steps. Action steps that you can provide to your, you can implement in your life that can improve the way that you live. What would the church look like that took out the true gospel at the center of it and replaced it with another gospel? It would look like the American church in many ways. I thought to myself, what would the Apostle Paul's letter look like to the American church? What do you think? <laughs> it would be strong, I'm, I'm guessing. It would be strong. You see, here's why Paul is so focused on addressing this right out of the gate in the letter to this church. is because another gospel message is dangerous. It is more dangerous than an anti-gospel message, much more, because it's subtle. It's just a slight twist. You see, what it does, 
Any message that is another gospel is not the true gospel. It takes the gospel and it makes it a pathway to bettering your life instead of being the good news that God has saved your life. It's the difference. The gospel is the good news that God has saved your life because Jesus gave his life for you and you're delivered because of his sacrifice. Another gospel says, yeah, yeah, that's true, but really, the Christian faith is about God bettering your life. I'm going to ask you a, a couple diagnostic questions, and I want to, please don't raise your hand. Just think to yourself. Because I think all of us here have been influenced by this. We've, there's slight twists and deviations to the gospel message that we've twisted and we've, we've turned and we've been influenced by. Because we hear it all around us all the time. And as you ask these questions to yourself, you can kind of get a picture of how it's maybe influenced you. And how you view God and, and faith and worship. So the first question is this. When you were driving here tonight, or walking, and you came in, was your motivation to get something or to worship someone? That's a big question. Was it to get something, like a nice note, something helpful for your week, or was it to worship someone? When you leave church and you are not energized for your week, and you don't feel as if the message or the, com the conversation or the time actually is going to improve what takes place from Monday through Friday, are you a little bit disappointed? What about if you come and you don't receive that action step or if you don't learn something? You come to church and you're like, I didn't really learn anything tonight. You see, all of those things, a nice action step for the week, learning something, it's all focused on getting something from God. That, our, that deliverance is about affecting our life now. That it's all about me. It's, not as, it's about him, yes, but it's really about me. And, and many of you know I'm, I'm, I'm pro action point. I think action points are good. I'm pro learning. I'm a huge nerd if you know me. And I could like read Bible history and be like, oh, that's interesting. Um, but that's not why we're here. You see, we're not here just to learn something and just to get a nice action point for the week. We're here to worship someone and to remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel. You see, what religion supplies and promises you is a betterment for your life right now immediately. Think of all the religious movements that are, are growing and taking place in our culture right now. You have the New Age movement. You have the, the growing uh, modern kind of version of a Stoic movement. You have the self-help movement. And you're like, wait, wait, you call that a religious movement. Yeah, these are religious movements because a religious movement is a set of a set of beliefs that requires a certain set of actions that promises a set of results. It's you believe something about life and the world and, and who you are, and then there's a couple specific actions that are required of you, and as long as you do those things, then you're going to net some certain results. And so all of these religious movements in our culture promise things like, Here's how you can improve your career. Here's how you can improve your positivity. Here's how you can improve your relationships. Here's how you can, you know, see emotional healing come. Here's how you can maximize your potential. Believe these certain things, do these certain things, and you will reap these certain benefits. But you notice every religious movement is dependent upon you. 
It's dependent upon you. For you to engage with the material, for you to actualize the material, for you to have enough money to have membership for the class. Many of them require for you to be somewhat flexible, you know, for you to be able to afford the conference over and over and over again. For you to have enough discipline to take the set of rules and apply them to your life on a consistent basis so you can see those results. Every religious movement is really hard to achieve the results promised, and it's exhausting. It's exhausting. I mean, how many of us have read so many different self-help books, and we just keep reading them, thinking somehow they're all going to eventually click, and we're not going to feel totally burnt out and exhausted by all the things that we have to apply? By this point, we have like 250 things we have to apply to our life because they're all competing with each other. It's exhausting. It's not good news. You see, the Christian faith is, is not religious. It is good news because it's not dependent upon you. It's not dependent upon your performance or your discipline, your ability to actualize the material, the amount of money you have or don't have. It is not dependent upon you at all. You see, we gather here on a weekly basis for one reason and one reason alone, to praise God for his deliverance in Christ and to remind ourselves of the true gospel because we easily distort it. Now, you see, God is a good father and he's gracious. And so many times on a Sunday night or we gather in community groups or different kind of interactions when you spend time with God's people, you may leave and leave energized. You may leave with an action step that you can apply to your life that will help you in your career, that will improve your relationships. You may be challenged and, and motivated. You may see your potential maximized and your life begin to flourish and satisfaction as God promises when you follow him begin to take place in your life. Those things can happen because God is a good father who gives good gifts to his children, but that's not why we're here. This is a gospel party. That's what this is. So we need to start not being a two-time church and a one-time church where we can really come to praise God for who he is. That's what this is about. You see, here's the problem. If the centrality of the gospel is not sitting in the throne of the church, it is not going to sit on the seat of the people's hearts. It's not. And that's why so many churches, and we, are, we can fall into this too. We are not like, oh, we're really doing it right and everybody else is doing it wrong. No, no, no. We can all fall captive to this because religious karma is really attractive. But what happens when you remove yourself from the true gospel that Jesus gave and you were delivered? You just look like every other religious movement. A certain set of beliefs and certain things for you to do that's going to promise you certain rewards and blessings. So the biggest threat to the church is not an anti-gospel movement. The biggest threat to the church is another gospel movement that is distorting the true message of Christ. We think things like, I know Jesus died for my sins, and I believe that, and I believe that he rose from the dead, and I'm delivered, and all that, but what do I need to do now? What's required of me? What about obedience? You see, Martin Luther, who was the pastor and reformer, has a great quote. He says, there is a clear and present danger that the devil may take away from us the pure doctrine of faith and may substitute it for the doctrines of works and of human traditions. It is very necessary, therefore, that this doctrine of faith be continually read and heard in public. Here's the truth. 
We don't need more action steps. We have enough. We don't need any more motivational speeches. We can look them up on YouTube. <laughs> what we need is the gospel, the good news that Jesus gave his life for you, and you're delivered. That's it. You're free. You're forgiven. You're loved. That's what we need more than anything. Some of you are thinking, that sounds really great, Carter, but I've read the Bible, and I know there are a lot of commands in the Bible. You're acting as if there's no commands there. There is very clearly a certain way to live. You're right. There are commands. There is a way that God says that we're designed to live, and there are good works that we've been called to. There is a response of faith that we should see us pursuing the things of God, but none of those things are that none of those things affect your deliverance. None of them. The gospel is Jesus gave you or delivered. That's it. There's a quote that I want to close with by uh, Pastor Steve Brown, who many of you know, uh, many years ago was a pastor of Crossbridge Key Biscayne when it was formerly um, Crossbridge, or no, uh, Key Biscayne Presbyterian. He was a pastor over there for many, many years. And he has this wonderful quote Here's what it says. The good news is that Christ frees us from the need to obnoxiously focus on our goodness, our commitment, and our correctness. Religious has made us obsessive almost beyond endurance. Jesus invites us to a dance, and we've turned it into a march of soldiers, always checking to see if we're doing it right and are in step and in line with the other soldiers. We know a dance would be more fun, but we believe we must go through hell to get heaven. So we keep marching. You see, here's the gospel. The gospel message is that Jesus gave his life for you, that he died for your sins, and he gave you deliverance. And through faith in what Christ has done, not what you could do, you're forgiven, you're loved, and you're free. And you're promised eternity in life and relationship with God. And see, what happens when you believe that, it's immediately as if God invites you to dance. And here's what doesn't happen. You come to believe that Jesus has died for you and come back from the dead for you and invited you into a relationship with him that will go on to eternity and you've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. And then God asks you to dance and you're like, nah, I'm good. I'm not, I'm a, I mean, thank you for that. Thank you for dying for me and my sins and delivering me. But like, I'm going to do me, you know, like I'm going to live my life. I don't want to dance with you, God. I want all the benefits, but I'm, that doesn't happen. What happens when you believe in the gospel is that God asks you to dance, and you're like, yeah, yes, of course. I, I want to know how to dance and how to follow after the music that you write. But here's what begins to take place. You begin to dance, and you realize you're not very good at dancing. And you're, all you can do is the box step, you know, and you're, you're trying to do the box step, and God's kind of coaching you along the way of how to live, and, and you keep falling, and you keep stumbling, and you keep falling down on the ground. And here's the fear that we all fear, that we all think and we all feel. As we begin to try to dance according to God's rhythm and we begin to follow his design and run after him and we stumble and we fall, we are so afraid that God's going to look at us and be like, you're a horrible dancer. You might as well cut your legs off. You know, I am done with you. I'm going to dance with someone else. We're so afraid of that. And so we keep trying to pretend like we're good at dancing. We keep trying to 
feel as if we're not going to get judged and God's not going to be disappointed, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is like God knows you're going to fall a lot and you're not very good at dancing. And when you fall down, he looks at you and he says, it's all right, get up. Let's keep dancing. Let's try it again. Box step round 45. And you're going to keep working at it and you're going to keep growing and eventually you're going to start with a little salsa. You're going to get there. And once you get there, you realize that there is so much freedom and there's so much joy in dancing to God's music and following his lead. But you need to know that even when you fall, even when you're still doing the box step, that God loves you, that you're forgiven and free, and no matter how many times you fall, you're still forgiven and loved and free. He's not going to change you out for another dance partner. That's the gospel. And that is what we need to remind ourselves of every single day. That is why we're here to worship. Because our deliverance is not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon him. And it's done. So will you pray with me? God, we confess that we, we make the gospel about us our performance, our ability, our discipline, our obedience. And Lord, oftentimes we just, we struggle so much that we give up. Lord, we confess that we have fallen asleep to the beauty of the good news that you gave your life for our sins and you have offered us deliverance. And we've fallen captive to believing that a, a deliverance for this week is more important and more vital than an eternal deliverance. Pray, God, that as we contemplate your word, that you would reorient our minds and our hearts, that be, we would be energized and full of joy at the truth that, Jesus, you gave your life for us and you have delivered us and we are loved and free and forgiven regardless how good we are at dancing. So, Lord, would that be the motivation of our heart? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.